this is Listeners, welcome to this far out new episode of Warped Celluloid. I'm your host, Jack Rourke, with my esteemed co host, Chandler Williams. How's it going this morning, Chandler? What are the vibes like on your end of the universe? Vibes are pretty good, Jack. You just, you know, slept in. It's a Sunday, you know, feeling pretty chill. How about yourself? I'm also having a pretty lazy Sunday, but uh, not so lazy anymore now that we're recording, I guess. Yes, I uh, also have a lot of homework to do after this, so... Likewise. Yeah. I mean, this is probably going to be a fun... We're going to find it'll be a little shorter episode, at least shorter than uh, the last couple ones. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into it. Chandler, what movie are we going to be talking about today? Today we'll be talking about After Hours. Why don't you just go home? I've been asking myself that one all night long. So what happened? Why can't you? I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> so when I got home, I gave her a call. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Yeah. Gigi! So I haven't got enough money to get home. Until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's all right. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Good boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I march right in there to apologize. Come on. But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true. Mohawk this guy. I couldn't believe that. It's him. Tell him. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help. 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 Call the police. What's with you? Are you nuts or something? <laughs> Luckily, oh. there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor, damn it. Is that all they After hours, when anything can happen, and usually does. Is that unbelievable or what? That's all they Okay, let's get into this right off the bat. We all love Martin Scorsese. We all think he's right in the MC you debate in debate in that these movies really are just theme park rides, let's be honest. Yes. But but uh that is neither here nor there. The thing that annoys me about that MCU debate is like Martin Scorsese only makes gangster movies. When stuff like this and bringing out the dead and Kund no and silent and the king of comedy exists. I'm like, how can you say Martin Scorsese doesn't have range? Yeah. The same guy who also made Goodfellas also made Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And Age of Innocence. Andrew did a Bob Dylan concert documentary last year. And the oh, nice. Alongside the Irishman. Yeah, I think that the gangster movies are just his most popular. 
That's fair. That is or like well known from amongst general non- audiences. Yeah, yeah, like non-film people. Raging Bull, which is often confused as a gangster movie, but really isn't. It's more, it's more of a, bi- a standard bio. Not even that standard, honestly, because mainly because it's better than most biopics. Let's be honest. Anyway, getting into After Hours, one of the reasons I love in this movie is honestly because it's so radically different from everything else Martin Scorsese did. Forget whether in its comparisons to his gangster movies, this is very different from his other movies set in New York too. It's a lot was... stranger. It's a lot darker. Hell, I'd say even darker than Taxi Driver in some ways. Uh, yeah, I guess so. In some ways, mind you, it's not. It doesn't go for that. It's not as violent as that ending. Jesus. Yeah, like tonally, I would consider Taxi Driver much darker. Um, but this is much stranger, which makes a perfect talking talking points for this podcast, I guess. Yeah. It's a it's a detached a little bit from his natural um, like style I guess. That isn't entirely on accident if you know the history of this movie because uh, okay so the, right a little bit of background information this was the movie Tim Burton was going to make before Pee Wee's Big Adventure or actually instead of Pee Wee's Big Adventure or but uh, Scorsese couldn't find funding at the time for Last Temptation of Christ just so uh, he kind of asked Tim Burton for a favor to step down and uh, graciously he said yes. Which is. Very nice of him. It's incredibly nice of him, especially, you gotta remember, this was before he had the cloud of uh, Beetlejuice and Batman and Edward Scissorhands to write off of. So it's it's not like this is a, must have been an easy decision for him. Yeah, he probably did not want to. But uh, I miss the old Tim Burton so bad. I miss <laughs> yeah. But that is a discussion for another day. I don't even hate a lot of his new recent movies. I still like Big Eyes in that Frankenweenie movie he did. Mainly because I just really, really love stop motion. Was Big Eyes was the um, biopic about the painter, correct? Yep, that would be correct. Okay, okay. I know of it, but I have not seen it. Um, it's quite good. It's good. Yeah. It's not going to change your life or anything, but I enjoyed it. But it's definitely enjoyable. Nice. Yep. Anyway, this movie, once we get into the parts with like the plaster of Paris or statues and all that other weird shit, I was thinking to myself, yeah, Tim Burton doing this makes sense. Yep. Yes, yes, correct. But it also makes sense doing Martin Scorsese. Because uh, I've heard this movie basically summed up as a film noir meets a screwball comedy, and uh, yeah, this is basically like, what if you smash Night in the City and it happened to one night in one movie? Yeah. But made it far weirder. It's one of those lo- one crazy night movies, like End of the Night, in the Night, Day Night, whatever you want to call it. And unlike a majority of the ones that aren't very good, this one actually maintains a good sense of stakes, I think. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree. Like, there is a real chance that the Griffin Dunn's character could die during all of this. Or, and, like, uh, go to jail. Or at least face some sort of horrible repercussions. I find there's, like, more of a grounded sense of realism in films that are set entirely in one day or one night. That is quite interesting. I'm not sure if that holds water for everything, but, it, yeah. but I can see that. Yeah, that, that's just something I thought about. Um, like, that, I think that, that held together the stakes. Yeah, yeah, I think it held it, held together the stakes of, you know, um, the film. But yeah. Continue. Another thing I'd say uh, is mean, a testament to uh, Scorsese's filmmaking ability is that if you know someone who loves this movie, I, or not, I will understand if you call this one of uh, Scorsese's lesser or mid-tier works. That being said, for a mid-tier work, this still has some some next level filmmaking. Like the camera moves feel like something out of out of a movie now. Oh, absolutely. Or like that one shot of uh, Griffin where it's panning around Griffin Dunn in the diner, or a diner, and the panic is starting to set in. And I'm like, that feels like something you'd seen in a in a Safety Brothers flick, which 
might not be entirely an accident because they have admitted to being huge fans of this movie, and you know what? Who can blame them? Yes, that's a um, you can really see that on their films, but um, yep, like especially uh, in Good Time, especially. Yes, yes. Um, the opening shot of this film, I thought was incredible. It sets the tone perfectly, oh, yeah. and the way it just shrinks in, into uh, Griffin Dunn's character really just shows this guy is a speck in a much broader universe that is completely designed to fuck him over at every single opportunity. Yes, and it, like it was such an impressive shot, I could see it in a film today also. Yep. Um, just like how they held focus the whole time. Part of it's the editing, too. Uh, this is, uh, of course, cut by uh, Scorsese's usual fellow shoemaker, who deserves a, uh, a special shout-out, because she is really one of the best, one of the greatest editors of all time. Once she passes away, it's going to be really hard to grapple with that legacy. She is- oh, absolutely. She, she pairs with Scorsese excellently. Um, I remember hearing a story that it's like, if a great director is a man, chances are the great editor is a woman. Correct. There's a lot of interesting analogies between directors and editors and husbands and wives. And although uh, I think if Thomas Schoenemaker and his Chris are not married, he she married, I believe. Um, actually, I'm not sure who she. I think she married Michael Powell, actually, who uh, was one of the people who helped get this thing made. Dude was really helpful during production. Interesting. Yep. Interesting to think he was still working by then, especially. Yeah, and she she um edited the Irishman, correct? Yep, she's still yeah, she's still editing with him till this day. Nice. I would like to see like a documentary about her. Oh yeah, I'd I'd imagine it'd be fascinating. I'd like to see editing get or get a documentary because of how much how important it is to the broader structure and bones of the story. Yeah, how overlooked it is. It's the connected tissue. It's what holds it all together. Yes, but like there there's so many like quick cuts and um just like super close ups that only but get. They're like, well timed quick cuts too. Yes, and they work so well. Like all the cuts that were happening in the scenes with um, Paul and Marcy, or in Marcy, where he's just like he is, where he's learning about all the horrible like skin graft stuff, and he's like, "Okay, I need to get the fuck out of here." And it's clear, and like he's not saying that, but he is clear that is exactly what he's thinking. And like when um, I think it's one of the same scenes, but when he's looking at the book, like the medical book. Yes, that's the, that's the same scene, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's a super close up of you know. Dozens of um, like photos from the medical book all cut very quickly, so you can't really identify any one of them. But you just see like, you know, obscure gore, and yeah. you hear like a baby sound, a, like screaming, a like yeah, it, baby, yeah. Good, there's good sound design all over this movie. Oh yeah, I thought that was a very nice editing um, sequence. You know, if the trailer didn't sum this up already, here's what the movie's actually about. Since we have gotten into it, a word processor. Decides he's bored with his job and decides to spend his week earn his uh week earn one night off. I have to go out of the town, maybe earn me a nice girl, girl in his own work and words. And uh, shit progressively gets crazier from there. Once it gets crazy, it gets like the craziness just compounds. It doesn't just get crazy and then that's it. It yeah, it gets it, progressively and I like crazier. how gradually it builds up. Like it starts to thread it in very. You know, it yeah. Gets cra- but it threads it in though. It doesn't. It doesn't get it in immediately, which. I remember one of the problems you had with it was like tonal jumps, and I think, I mean, for me, it doesn't feel as bad I and mean, bad for you is because again, it threads it in so gradually. Yeah, yeah. Just some of the tonal jumps, I couldn't, I couldn't. They weren't really convincing for me, and I couldn't really stand beside them. Um, but I see like why they had to be done. 
Um, and again, like what reinforced it being, you know, not a big deal is like it's a, it is a screwball comedy. Um, yep, it is a, about as dark as I think the best way I could sum this movie up or inside of plot details is a is a series of increasingly harsh kicks to the balls, and 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 finishing off with one final blow. And that blow is the Peggy Lee number that they use at the end where he tries to hide out in the night in like the punk club once it's all empty. God, the use of that song is such a good fucking joke in and of itself. Yes. Like just a one last gut punch just or just to completely fuck with its main character. That's a great scene too. Like it, it you know, everything kind of calms down for a second. Yep. Before it all comes right back. Um but the actual but, themes of the song actually really play well with the scene. Like, I just watched everything burn down in front of me, and I'm wondering, that's it? And I'm just like, we're in like the, in the I'm exhausted, but you know what? Can things get any worse? Yes. Just, it's a perfect song for the film man, and for that so, scene. It's so, so funny. Yeah. I do love how the movie shoots New York, too. It's, and it's shot differently from something like Taxi Driver, because... This was still when New York or New York was still and still um, not the epicenter of pop culture, and uh, in a way was still in shambles. Like this was like only a year after the Bernie Getz incident, and if I'm not mistaken. Could you fill me in on that? This old dude, dude was um, was being intimidated by some uh, I think four black teenagers on a sub or a subway. Like he thought he was they were mugging him, so he pulled out a gun and fired at him. He didn't kill any of them. And then they all died of in various causes later, like decades later. But uh, that is a very important moment to talk about historically because it's one of the things that motivated the city getting cleaned up, like actually cracking down on crime and whatnot. Is like, no, wait, this is an actual problem. We need to, we need to. I don't want to say crack down on this, but like take it a little more ser- seriously and kind of re- and, uh, revamp the image of the city. Yeah, which they did successfully. Oh yeah, well yeah. What I say now, like, I mean, just compare. I mean, you can just see that comparing movies that set set in New York now, set in New, compared to what's in then, because everything in like the seventies New York is like Taxi Driver, The Warriors, Death Wish, all that. Like everything is grimy and unclean. We're gonna clean every street corner is suspicious, suspicious and dark, and probably has a good chance of getting mugged. mugged. There's some other horrible crime. It's like um, Gotham in The Dark Knight Returns. Yep. Which was actually uh, partially an inspiration for that, I think. Oh, I would not be surprised. Going back to the music in this film, I do love the use of classical music. Um, I do too. The, the first opening scene, and then like for the opening credits, and then the opening scene. I love. I, I like the opening. Really, really well done um, sequence, and like a great choice. And I love how it comes back at the end, which. I know we're very still very early on in this episode. But I really want to talk about the ending because it is. Honestly, the best note this movie could possibly end on is after a lot of this stuff, when he, when he, um, Paul, when Paul W. Griffin Dunn's character finally get, when gets back to work, or like the morning after, after without a hint of a shred of sleep or financial security, and he just dusts himself off and sits down in silence as the camera slowly pans out and people finally coming into work like no problem. It is such. It is such a good dick punch to end on. Oh, yes. I do love the imagery of the gates, too. Those yeah. tall, golden metal gates. It feels uh-huh. like he's getting out of a dream or entering another dream. Yes. Like, it has a really surreal quality. I can't tell if it's just the gates themselves or some sort of sound design, but like, 
Wait, did he just enter another universe? The gates. I, th- I feel like I've seen them several places before. But yeah, it's the, it's got that Art Deco design that was everywhere in New York or in L.A. at the time. Yeah, but I, I just really, I really LA, think actually. Gates. More so New York. Wait, I uh, one of my favorite things about this is a uh, Griffin Dunsley performance. Who, not a guy who did a lot of acting, but when he did show up, he gave it all he could. Like you probably know him best as Jack from American Werewolf in London. And he was also in uh, My Girl and that Madonna movie, Who's That Girl? Which, right, and uh, yeah, this. The, I think these were his, those were his only major roles. Like, he did some minor stuff, but this were the only things that um, got him or got him any sort of uh, noticed. This was the first film I've seen him in. Um, yep. I had not recognized him before. I think his performance in this is great, even if the character isn't always that, or that interesting. Or sympathetic. It's just kind of a device. And like it is a consistent. I mean, the I mean, the character is immensely improved by improved by the performance, in my opinion. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's one of um, those like this guy is clear. I mean, like I love how one of the reasons that we going back to the thing earlier where we were talking about how dreamlike those gates are. It's one of those small. I mean, those little subtle hands to show you how detached from the rest of the world he is. Like he's just like this yuppie office schlub. I mean, schlub. What does he know about going on a night in the town, especially in a. In this part of town, like the Soho district. Yeah, and I like the contrasting backgrounds behind him all the time. Like there, there's always like a gay couple sometimes making out just like casually in the background of every Speaking shot. Which I would love to read analysis of what this movie was like in like the midst of the AIDS crisis. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's still yikes. It's a nice historical um, you know, bit of context. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I am not sure how intentional this was because this is like the don't. Right, when uh, AIDS was still first entering the like the popular consciousness, like it was still obviously developed or anything since the early '80s, but the, the average person probably didn't know what it was until like at least '85, '86. Anyways, my next my next note was I love when there are books on film. Um, I think it's like an awesome way for writers to just like acknowledge books they like and have characters talk about them and say like, oh, yeah, I, also I like, like that too. Book. It's such a good little bit of. Or is that, or in design, like the opening bar where he's just reading, and reading, and he meets the you know, Marcy. Yeah, and they bond over the book, and they like, you know, recite lines from it. And I, I think that's awesome. And speaking of literary stuff, uh, the scene where he's go first going to that punk club and he's uh, having the argument with the bouncer, that was inspired by Franz Kafka, of all things. And speaking of that club, uh, we have a certain cameo in that scene. Uh, care to mention it, Chandler? Which, which scene? The punk oh, the, scene the, where he goes the in the club. Oh, with the dude oh. in. Yes, I mean nope. there are several cameos in the film, but um, he says he has a cam. Oh yeah, a lot yes. of Dick Miller has a great in cameo in as the uh, diner clerk, clerk who's really kind of a sleazebag. And if you don't know who Dick Miller is, you've seen him in, like a hundred things. He's the dad, one of the dads in Gremlin. Gremlins. He shows up in just so many stuff, like a lot of Roger Corman movies too. He also showed up in the in the Terminator and the gun scene, or in shop. He's in Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. He's in. He's in Chopping Mall, The Howling. He's in The Dirty Dozen. He's a, he, this isn't even the only Scorsese movie he's in, because he's also in New York, New York with De Niro. Nice. Well, this probably was my favorite cameo. Um, seeing Scorsese on like the um in the risers of the club, um, like you know, shining a light. He had Russia, you know, like he looks yeah, like he had sk- like, bearded Stalin. He had a Russian like suit on, and he was bearded. Yeah, I just thought that was so funny. And like, I'm like, what was that all about? Yeah. Just Another very, one of the great things about the background details is that they may is that they were gonna ask more questions that they answer that could lead to a whole bunch of other possibilities. Like, why is he in a? I mean, but not like a nitpicky way, but more like, okay, there's a story behind this, and I want to know why. This is still when like Russia was the, 
you know, big scary. Yeah, this bad this guys. was like right before the tail end of the Cold War. Like, so they, that gives that gives more context, also. Yeah, but that's I think that's a interesting detail that he was wearing that. Um, and I just thought it was funny. Other little details I thought were funny was were um the, that part where he's in the bathroom and he sees that graffiti and he's like, oh god, the one of the shark biting the dude's dick off. Oh yeah, that's a great shot. Where like half of his face he's is like, in the mirror. Oh, just, just like when he's just going from washing his hands to looking in the mirror and actually noticing it, and just the instant realization of, oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, Riven that's Dunn what... just makes a great, very, like, put upon, very, upon, very, like, smartass. Like, if you haven't seen American Werewolves in London, Chandler, get on that. It is going, he is amazing in that movie. Yeah, I just wrote it down. I'll definitely watch it for, like, the, you know, upcoming Halloween season. I guess we're already in. Halloween season. I mean, arguably, yeah. Some people said, since COVID is ru- ruining everything, we might as well start in Halloween into September. Yeah. I have nothing against that. It means no. I have a better excuse to watch monster movies and shit. Yeah, I love Halloween. It's my birthday, actually, on Halloween. Hey, nice. So, yes. Um, hey, anyways. One of the I about the cast was uh, both the mom and the dad from Home Alone are in this. Oh, yeah. Who, yep. Who's the mom? The mom is the uh, ice cream truck lady. Oh, yes, yes. Remember that leads to the angry mob <laughs> near the oh. end? Speaking of which, what, another thing I love about this movie is how quotable it is. What do you want from me? I'm just a word processor. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some good one-liners. Um, and there's definitely, st- uh, speaking of, what, right, of which, uh, one of the things that m- mentions uh, how much of an artifact of this time or in time this movie is, is I don't even know what the fuck a word processor is. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> like, how old the computers look in the opening shot. Oh, yeah, and also the, the fact that this is one of those movies that you could argue is rendered moot by the existence of cell phones. I'd argue <laughs> that cell phones actually make this movie kind of more terrifying. How so? If you think about it, like, what if no one answers the call, or in a call, and, like, what if his phone di- dies? Like, there's still, I mean, there's still instances where, like, oh, yeah, and the fact that I don't really know this stuff. Reminds me, remember the bit in Good Time where Robert Pattinson's we're trying to distract the running 16-year-old girl, girl from finding out he's wanted by the cops? We're in cops, and uh, because his face is plastered all over the TV. That's how I think cell phones would make this infinitely worse. In terms of, yeah. like, stakes and panic. Is that it just puts a bigger spotlight on him. It just, yeah. It, he wouldn't need to, um, like, go into people's house to use their phone. That's true. Because we need either just have his own phone. I felt bad for for the taxi driver in the beginning. Yeah, like I just love, I mean, love how long, or like when he's explaining, like, "Hey, I just lost all my money, man. Can we just here's my change?" And he just like the slow dawning realization, like this guy's gonna fucking stiff me after I drove him all across town. He kind of, it, it reminds it, me of the car chases in Mad Max, the road warrior, yeah. not like Fury Road, like the road. It really works for the scene. Yep, it goes completely well with the tone. Yeah, yeah. Also, the dad um, in Home Alone, I am so surprised his character didn't turn out to be a serial killer or something. Because there is something off about him in a good way. Which one is he? He's the bartender. Oh, the yes. Or who he borrows his keys so he can get some money or money to get home from. I thought he was pretty nice at first. Yeah, but at first, but like there I mean, like when he starts kicking in like the close-ups of him intensely staring, like, is there something off about this? I mean, what where's this gonna go? I'm like, I'm curious. That brings me to another point um, that I wrote down. Um, was I love like the awkwardness of the comedy in this film. I think that's like a big um, rock that 
the comedy stands on in this film is just like the awkwardness and absurdity of the scenes and situations. Just how clearly this guy just does not fit in this part of town. And like, just people makes you uncomfortable. Forget, New York is a fucking big city with all this very interesting and weird little corners that you could get lost in. The whole thing feels like a maze. Which I think I've is honestly been. one of the best uses of New York on film is real or in using its scope against the character. I mean, yeah. character to make him feel like a rat in a cage. It's I mean, it's used so well here. Like getting from one side of town to the other. It's just like, like you know, it, a huge it, ordeal. Speaking of things that definitely make this like, oh yeah, that was from nineteen eighty five. The subway to bit. I mean where he has to like he doesn't have enough money for a token and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Well, so he jumps how to the thing. And I'm not even saying this is a mark against the movie. Movie, it's just to find it interesting. It's interesting as like a time capsule. Yes, yes, and there are many examples of that throughout this film. And like everything, you know, I still love like with the right. I'm speaking of quotable lines from this, the uglier the art, the more it's worth. <laughs> from Cheech or other Cheech and Chong. Chong, who are not in this movie for a very long stretch of time, but have some of the funniest moments. They play the perfect role. They're, oh yeah, the payoff with who they actually are is such a great. Yes. <laughs> such a great reveal. Like they're who's been causing me all this trouble the whole time. I'm like, so many just great. Oh, are you kidding me? Moments. And it, it's honestly hilarious. Yep. Just because they're so funny. Hilarious because it exhausts everyone involved. Yeah. And they're just like, you know, dumb stoners. Yep. They're like, hey, man, we dropped my sta- Here's my statue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the way the way he's able to escape the mob at the end is uh, he accidentally pours plaster of parasol over himself. And uh, the girl who lives underneath, uh, or in Verna Bloom, actually, who I think was in Psych. Well, I know. Oh, wait, never mind. She wasn't in Psych. She was Dean Wormer's wife in Animal House. That's how I remember. Uh, yeah. Or that's a funny. She basically makes him like this paper mache into this paper mache statue, uh, not unlike the statue we see here in the very beginning of the movie. Which, what a way to bring that completely full circle. Yes, and there are some really great shots of him, like as the statue. Yeah. Um, like that that just overhead shot when they're in the basement, and he's like awkward. The statue's like in an awkward position, position of just being like hunched over, but like his arms are out. I just think it's so funny. Yep. And the way that they mistake him for the statue that they bought, they got earlier. Like, oh, hey, that's neat. Yeah. And they ended up dropping him back off at work. The blaster pair shatters, and he's, like, covered in all this white dust and stuff. And stuff. He is exhausted and clearly needs some sleep in a shower. Some sort of R&R. R&R but he just stra- waltzes back into work anyway. What a beautifully in pitch black way to end the movie. Yeah, and he, but he's but wearing. That's actually it would be more merciful just to kill him off at the end. <laughs> and he's wearing his suit too, so yep. it it just makes him look like he, you know, kind of should be there, like he he belongs in the place, you know, among in other people yuppie, dressed in, in that suits. yuppie or in mid or in mid eighties Wall Street culture. Yes, but, but he's, he's just covered in that white. Dust. But he's way too timid and nevish to actually send into like a stockbroker job, so he's just kind of the middleman, right? That people don't really think about. Yeah, just a super unimportant job that you know. Yep, I mean, that's it's just, just like easily done by the rest of the. It, I mean, like a member of the fringe who cannot adjust to the rest of the fringe. Yes, 
Correct. When you think about it, hmm, much to think about. <laughs> Actually, now that I think about it, this would make a great double feature with Barton Fink. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I could see that. Speaking of movies with great supporting performances, I really do love Griffin Dunn's performance. I also love, love Rosanna Arquette's performance. And the actress who shows up as the art, or artist uh, Kiki, she's so good. I love the moment yeah. where he gets the name of Edward Munch the scream wrong, and she's like, so done with your shit, man. I mean, like, she, but she's too nice to actually say it out loud. I think she's a great character, just because, like, she plays, like, the, you know, weird you artist. I think this whole movie just about her, honestly. Yeah, and then she's, like, in the... <laughs> Like the BDSM thing, and he like walks in on it. On oh accident. yeah, oh yeah, the appearance of Will Patton. It is like that slow pan up to the him in the gym suit. It's just such a uh, what the fuck out of nowhere thing. Yeah. But also just such a great pan. Like, then why were you tied up? Oh, that's why. I'm just gonna leave now. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> I wish most comedies had most in filmmaking uh, this good, and in this and well timed and well choreographed. Congrats, and like just this well realized. Yeah, and just very well directed too. Honestly, the closest we've come to this is like the work of Edgar Wright and may and maybe Game Night. I have not seen Game Night. I really, really liked it. It's got a great Cliff Martinez score too. And uh, speaking of great scores, this along with the early Cronenberg stuff was one of the uh, earliest Howard Shore works. Who you know from Lord of the Rings and a lot of other stuff. Stuff now yeah. does a lot the of score, great work here. The score is. Fantastic in this film. I really like Howard Shore's work, work before Lord of the Rings. Like his stuff with Cronenberg. I really like his score for Ed Wood. I love uh, putting it on the background when I write. I'm writing that down. Keep Cronenberg in mind, lis listeners. We're definitely going to get around to him once uh, the Halloween se season proper kicks off. Indeed, and I'm looking forward to it because I've never seen any Cronenberg. Yep. Speaking of a uh, little detail, actually speaking of Cronenberg, just for a brief bit, Criterion Channel is doing a whole bunch of 70s horror movies for October, and some, and there's a few really Cronenberg stuff in there. I think you're going to be really happy about that. They even got the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there, too, and Black Christmas and a lot of other cool stuff. Nice. Oh, even some titles I haven't seen yet. I'm like, score. Sponsored by that Criterion Channel. <clears throat> Sponsored by Criterion. One of the other little, de I mean, speaking of little details, that original, like the recurring motif skulls and all sorts of creepy shit like it's on the dude's uh keychain it's on it's the tattoo that marcy ha has when he's looking at her dead body which is such a creepy weird scene like if you take that out of context it is such a ugh, it feels like it almost feels like something out of a william lustig movie like maniac or something yeah it's just because you like I mean, a lot of these scenes, if they were taken out of context. Now I think about it, forget Barton Fink in After Hours. Do a double feature of Maniac in After Hours. God, I mean, like, New York City grime. Which film was that? Maniac. It's a horror, It's a slasher movie from 1980 with uh, effects by the same guy who worked on uh, Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th. This movie really... I still find, or I find it sad. I think this movie is kind of important historically-wise, because... Even though this movie wasn't a huge hit, like it did, it doubled its budget, but it was only like four point five million million, so it wasn't like a massive, massive smash or anything or anything. But it was just that one little inch closer that Scorsese got to making Last Temptation of Christ, which got him a whole bunch of other gig gigs. So you know what? It's still important. I still see. Yeah, definitely important to his career and yeah. like the um, just showing his range too. Exactly. Exactly. I think. I mean, I think I love. I honestly, if we're gonna pair two Scorsese movies together, I pair this and Bring Out the Dead, because both show New York. I mean, like these different sides of New York, 
in York to the people, and then, like, one, one is this yuppie thing, and one is just, like, another Riptorian type of person that, well, people have been thinking about now because of all this talk about essential workers and whatnot, paramedics. Oh, yeah. Was that the one with Nicolas Cage? That is indeed the one with Nicolas Cage, and it's on Amazon Prime, so y'all owe it to yourselves to check it out. Great, great, brilliant film. Probably my favorite thing Scorsese's ever done outside of Taxi Driver. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of good things. I it. really, really love Bringing Out the Dead. Fun fact, that was one of the first movies shot by Robert Richardson, who is uh, Quentin Tarantino's main the last few years. Nice. That's a fun fact. His photography in this is really good, by the way. Or in that, I mean. The DP for After Hours was, hang on, let me do uh, another instance of doing research during the podcast and not before because we are not particularly responsible with this. Anyway, Michael Bauhaus, who shot Goodfellas, The Departed, Gangs of New York, he did the Coppola, he did the Coppola Dracula? Fucking hell, that's awesome. He also did Air wow. Force One and Broadcast News. Dude, World on a Wire. God, this guy's got a cr- an incredible pedigree. Nice. His work here is really good, though. Like that, those rainy, rainy streets and the fog, and the fog and the harsh shadows. And Chandler and I were talking about this while we were watching it. This thing is a masterclass in terms of lighting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like again, this might not be a perfect movie, but it has so many flashes of greatness throughout it that I think it's impossible to dismiss. Yes, and I would re- highly recommend. I mean, I would, I would recommend it. Yes. Yeah. And with that in mind. Let's get on to the rating. Chandler, how would you rate this film out of 10? I'd give it a solid 7. I, th- I think, I remember I was telling you about a concept I had with like the three and a half star move, three and a half out of five. I mean, like, it's not great, but it has flashes of greatness to where it sticks out in your mind and you'll probably end up revisiting it a few years down the line. Yeah. The solid yeah. 7. Like, the solid. The, I can see that being for some people, but I'm sorry, I have to give this thing an 8. I love. There's just so much about it that I love. I mean, like, I d- I'm not as far as some other people who are claiming this is top tier Scorsese, but I definitely appreciate it a lot more. At least it was at the time, because I'm not sure. This really flew under the radar. Yeah, I like can I see said, that. This was a modest hit. Not, I mean, this wasn't, wasn't anything like career defining or anything. Or anything. Mass audiences were just kind of like, yeah, this is fun. Fun, but it kind of slid out of people's minds, which is a shame because I do think this is a very memorable. It's distinct, not just within Scorsese's career, but in general. Yeah, a great time capsule for the '80s. Yep, and for New York, or New York, and this kind of screw in comedy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what else have you seen lately, Chandler? Honestly, not much. I've been loaded with homework, um, I... but I did get around to watch the first bit of. North by Northwest, finally, and I nice. decided to and watch the rest of it. Movie to discover for the first time. Oh, I yeah. I watching that in high school and be like, damn, this really is as good as everyone says. Yes, yes. And he also has a uh, cameo. He, he has a cameo in the opening scene. Ah, uh, yes, Hitchcock's director. Uh, I thought was that was fast. Yes. Anyway, I think that's what we said. If you haven't seen it after hours, go check it out now. It's on HBO Max. Max, last time I checked, it's like a $5, like, for not even rental, you can just buy it for 5 bucks on Amazon and iTunes. Nice. You know, it's a, it is not a hard film to track down, although, I'm a little sad to see that there's no Blu-ray of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, lo- I like to see Shout Factory get their hands on this. I like to see... Yeah. Shout Factory, Kino Lorber, like, some... I don't think this would be something a criteria would put out, I don't... No, no. You know, it does 
I mean, it's weird to, I mean, that something is you know, something like Criterion, which has such a broad mission statement, has cultivated their own aesthetic over the years. Yes, and I'm a huge fan. I'm I'm here for it. Well, yeah, we're film students, of course we're huge fans, <laughs> but that's as predictable as the tides, man. Yes. Not a bad thing, yes. per se, because Criterion does some really important work, although it is scary to think how much of film history would fall into the, or into the ether if they ever went down. Or if they were never... You know, created. Yeah, I think that's why film fans should at least respect them. Even if they or they are annoyed with the whole cult and cult of personality around it, which I am too. Trust me. Yeah, yeah. It it, it can get really annoying, like the whole film, tw- especially when you get to film Twitter, which may that eventually rust in hell in the same place as the IMDb message boards. Yeah, I'm I'm thankful I don't have a Twitter, and I am not a part of film Twitter. But yep. the Criterion Channel, there there is an era, an an air of pretentiousness involved. Yeah. I, not inherent to it, more ascribed to it, or by others. Yeah. Not yeah, necessarily yeah, yeah. their fault. It it happens. It's fine. Nothing against them. We're in art school. We're we're used to it. Yep. Speaking of which, one last thing about After Hours is a uh, that punk or that scene where he goes to the punk nightclub, which you asked me if there were fences, like oh god. The, those clubs were so much worse than this movie even lets on. Ran lets on in that one scene. Ran like those yeah. things were absolute violent, like balls getting thrown around, like guys like Gigi Allen throwing chairs at his audience and doing all sorts of horrible shit. <laughs> yeah, like it was genuine fucking chaos in those clubs. That makes me anxious. <laughs> I mean, I kind of want to see it just as like a fly in the wall, but I would never yeah. go to one of these. I mean, like at least unless it was a guarantee. As in, there's a damn good reason they had fences up in these clubs, even though they were indoors. Wow. Yep. And that I meant, I bring that scene up because one, it's one of the, it's one of the most fun and bizarre mo- or in a detours that this movie goes on in a series of many fun and bizarre detours. Or and I might add, or is yeah. um, it feels like the kind of thing our co- or art students would do now. Like yeah. yes, I would hold a party like this. Yes, yes, I know at least like five people who would hold a party like this. Yeah, anyway. I thought it was funny where he gets his head, part of his head shaved. That was, oh, that was like, nice. He feels like Shocker. a, I remember, I remember the family guy bit on Jackass. Or yeah. When the camera just like buzz. Oh, what the hell, man. <laughs> also, I kind of want to right now plaster Paris big on cream cheese paper right now. Yes, that would be a. That'd be a, a fun desk distinct... decoration and a fun in joke. Yeah, very distinct reference. Yep. Just like of all the things to get known for, why something that specific and odd, like neat? That is the most niche thing I can think of. Yeah. Okay, maybe not that niche. There's probably if there's something the internet has taught me, if, imagine the worst thing you can think of, and then imagine something worse than that. I think the same principle applies to this film as well, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah. I think I'm out of things to say on this one. I as well. Yep. Anyway, you can find Chandler and I on you know on Letterbox. Just search our names, Jack Rourke and Chandler Williams. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Warp Celluloid. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Basically, wherever you get your podcasts. Just guaranteed Spotify and iTunes. Let's just say that. Yes, anyway, totally. thank you for listening. And next time we're going to be taking our usual hiatus. Isn't that for like our usual two week hiatus? Because well, when we come back. We'll be back better than ever. We're gonna be doing some Bergman. We're gonna be doing some Kroenberg, some Cosmatos. Halloween's gonna be fucking fun around these parts. Mark my oh, yes. words.
Yes. It'll be anyway, a, thanks for listening, everyone. Month. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Thank you.